In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What are we even doing? That's the question I find myself asking more often than I'd like. I've been in ministry for about 15 years, doing church, quote-unquote, meeting and gathering, worshiping and seeing people. I spent time and effort considering how to best use space to equip the church for its mission. Last year, the youth group had a whole evening dedicated to a conversation about whether or not virtual church was really a church. And even though I recognize that good discussions are open-ended, I clearly had an answer I wanted them to arrive at, which is virtual church is not in any meaningful way church. A church that only gathers online, I asserted 12 months ago, is a deficient church. Well, pride goeth before the fall, my friends, and here we are. But the question still pops up in my head, is this really even church? I think our texts this morning can help us a little as we wonder this question to ourselves. In John's Gospel, we read from Jesus' teaching in the upper room. Just before today's reading, Jesus explained to his disciples that they couldn't follow him going. And then at the start of our reading, he assured them, or he reassured them, do not let your hearts be troubled. But you can understand their concern. They faced an uncertain future. How would they go forward without Jesus? How could they continue? Well, Jesus points them forward to the dwelling places that exist in his father's house. Now, I don't think we should read this in the exact same way as Jesus' words to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Because when Jesus talks about his father's house elsewhere, it isn't a celestial cloud castle, but the temple. And the temple isn't heavenly as in out there. The temple is heavenly as in on earth as it is in heaven. It wouldn't be much encouragement for the disciples about to lose their teacher and leader, looking for direction to be told, I don't know what to tell you for now, but once you die, I have a sweet place waiting for you. The encouragement is this, you'll be able to live a similar life to the life I led. Certainly Jesus' way is the way of the cross, and the disciples themselves would walk that path eventually. But there was much more to their stories before the end. And in the chapter that follows, Jesus told them to love him was to follow his commandments. What he's talking about is how they could live their lives in his absence. And their lives without him wouldn't be lesser. In fact, Jesus tells them that they're about to do greater works, that whatever they ask in his name, he will do. And that's a pretty grandiose promise. And if you're like me right now, it can feel like an expectation I can't reach. These days I feel powerless and weary, and most days I feel like it's a lofty goal to reach enough, let alone greatness. But stick with me, because I think Jesus' promise is even better than we might think. Because I think the point of the great works matters. Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The point of it all is Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. When we think of the great things that the disciples did in their ministry after Jesus' ascension, their own power was never the end in and of itself. Even the phrase, in my name, isn't meant to be a talisman that we wield or a mantra that we repeat in order to accomplish our goals. It is the recognition that what the followers of Jesus are called to do is to be Jesus' ambassadors. 
be representatives of his kingdom, do things in his name. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Peter, in his first epistle this morning, is doing just that work by pointing the early church to Jesus. Our reading this morning began with this, long for the pure and spiritual milk so that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, come to him, a living stone. Now Peter is writing to a dispersed church. His letter opens to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. His readers were Christians scattered and separated throughout the known world. It's at this point that it feels like the gap between our experience and the experience of the biblical audience is maybe a bit narrower. We know what it's like to be told that we are a church gathered that cannot gather. It's to this diaspora that Peter invokes all these wonderful images of what God is doing in gathering the church and making this people. There's the building images that Peter invokes with the temple, with Jesus as the cornerstone, the crucial piece that holds the whole thing together. I read conflicting commentaries, one which emphasizes the cornerstone being what we typically think of as the bottom piece of a building. Others that said, since Peter invokes a psalm in which there's a stone that the builders rejected, and that's become the cap cornerstone that is actually the last piece that goes in, the one that completes the whole building. I'm not sure it particularly affects the meaning. At the end of the day, Jesus is the most important piece. Peter quotes God's plan to bring back an unfaithful Israel As it was prophesied in Hosea, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. You once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The kingdom of priests that Peter talks about is what God said about his people as he formed them in the Exodus and is how he speaks of them in the revelation to John. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for the world, and the church is the manifestation of how God would bring his renewal project into the world. So I take some comfort this morning that when church doesn't feel like church, when it feels like we are a dispersed and disconnected people who are hardly getting by, Peter encourages us that we worship a God who is making us into a temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. He is making us into a kingdom of priests, the people who make God known to the world. Peter says that this all happens in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We may, we may not be in the same space, but we are still called to do the ministry of the church, the proclamation of the gospel in word and in deed. But to my opening question, what are we even doing? Or maybe, let's, let's look positively, what is it that we should be doing? What does successful ministry look like? Well, we get one little picture of it, one snapshot, by looking at Stephen. We read only the end of Stephen's story here, the response to his last sermon. The sermon itself is the whole story, starting with Abraham, going through the Old Testament, leading to Jesus. You can read it all in Acts 7, and you can understand why his hearers might have been pretty angry with him. Truth is not always popular, so in a fury they kill him. And we see this flurry of activity in Stephen's last few moments. Stephen says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. I think it's good to note that Jesus appears uniquely to those who are in distress. A bit of hope for those of us who feel at the end of our ropes. Now when Stephen says, look, don't picture him gazing into space as if he was given a sort of telescope to peer into heaven galaxies away. 
I think it's more like Stephen has had the fog rolled back. Not unlike when Elisha knew that there was an army of the Lord surrounding him and asked God to open the eyes of his servant to see it. Stephen is given insight into what is already there. He's now smack dab in the middle of two courtrooms. There's the earthly one and the heavenly one. One is an angry mob. The other is the throne room of God. And the more important of the two is vindicating him. And then Stephen does this unique thing walking in the way of Jesus until the very end. Sure, his prophetic word is unwelcome and his words are harsh. And he ends his sermon by saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one. And now you have become his betrayers and murderers. You are the ones that received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you have not kept it. You might think that in that moment, Stephen is basically saying, fine, you're going to kill me. Kick rocks, I don't care. But despite that harsh word, despite his, what seems like anger and frustration, they stone Stephen and he responds to his executioners in the exact same way that Jesus does. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. If our only picture of faithful ministry was that of Stephen, if he was our only New Testament example, we'd have this. The deacon, the servant, appointed to make sure that minority widows, or at least the minority in the church, the Hellenist widows, weren't skipped over in the distribution of bread. Preaching hard truths to an unwilling audience, Peter gets to have 3,000 converts, Stephen is martyred, both were faithful. And in the end, Stephen desired one thing for those who harmed him, mercy. Now, I don't want to zero in on the particulars of Stephen's ministry and say, we need to do exactly these things. There is, of course, a great temptation to say, well, if speaking hard truths is a thing we should do, we should just go out and say harsh things to everybody we meet. Instead, I want to say this. The work of God is almost, by definition, unquantifiable. There are no metrics to measure faithfulness. There's no bar graph we can put together, no charts year by year to see where can we measure our faithfulness. And though most days this doesn't feel like church, the reality is this, our work as a church is the same as it ever was. We don't get to determine the context or outcomes of what we're called to do. We don't get to pick our lives. We are in the lives we're in. If we believed that the fundamental work of the church was to have services in a building and do weekly programming, we've mistaken the means for the ends. And if we think that God is sort of a cosmic school teacher who's looking at us right now and saying, well, I had big expectations for you, but I guess since there is this plague, I'll let you off by doing only part of the assigned homework. I think we're mistaking what God's asking us to do. What God has asked of us is to be faithful witnesses in word and deed to his glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus. We're still called to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. We said the summary of the law at the beginning of the service, loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's the summary of our calling. So when you offer a kind word to your neighbor, when you check in on a vulnerable friend, or even more so when you check in on a vulnerable enemy, to see if they have the groceries that they need, when you care for your family, when you set up a bird feeder, you are doing what God has asked of you. When you stay home, 
or put on a mask when you're going out in order to slow the spread of a deadly virus. You are doing what God has asked of you. When you weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, when you fall on your knees and pray to the God of all mercy to spare lives, you are being the church, the holy priesthood of believers. When you speak out against the injustice that we live in a country where lynchings are not history but headlines, you are being the church. None of us are doing it perfectly, but we were never doing this perfectly. But don't fall into the lie that just because we're impeded from doing a lot of the very good things that we used to do, that we are somehow kept from being faithful, that the church is on pause, or that we're half a church. Trust that God does miraculous things with the little that we offer. Stephen's sermon was a success because it was a true witness to God's glory. And Stephen couldn't have possibly known that the man who stood at the side and approved of his death would eventually become one of the chief apostles to the Gentiles. As I was reading, I wondered what effect Stephen's sermon had on the heart of Saul. What seed was planted that might have been called a failure of a sermon? We don't know. The text doesn't give us any indication. And maybe it's just Andrew's hopefully sanctified imagination. But I wonder what happened there. I wonder if Saul, upon his conversion, reflected on the words of Stephen. So take heart. Just because we can't meet doesn't mean that God isn't using us. I'm not trying to impose guilt or shame, saying, go out and do more. I'm exhausted and weary too. But I pray that we all may have the fog lifted from our eyes so that we can maybe even see glimpses of heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, so that we might proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, maybe even do the greater works in the name of Jesus, knowing ultimately that all that is expected or asked of us is our faithfulness, and that God can and will do amazing and unexpected things when we are faithful with whatever it is we are given and whatever the time we are given. Amen.